Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park um, this week. It's hard to believe that it's Thanksgiving, so I hope that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, if this is your first time here and you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, there's a card in the seat in front of you um, called Connection Card. If you please want to fill that out after the service, just drop it off at one of the drop boxes at the entry, exit doors. Um, and all we want to do is just call you, reach out to you, uh, see how we can minister to you. Um, I want to thank all of you that contributed to our Thanksgiving baskets. Uh, we, we collected over a hundred Thanksgiving baskets because of your generosity. So thank you so much as we distribute it and the rest of the food will distribute um, over the Christmas time. And then mark your calendars. Don't forget December 5th um, is our next member gathering. That's going to be at six o'clock and it's an important time for us to come together as a family to talk about all that the Lord has done and how he's moved in our church and also talk about the resources that he has given us and how we can use it to further his his kingdom. Um, and then also don't forget there's a few angels that are left at the angel tree um, out at the info center. So make sure you pick one up on your way out. And I think they are due uh, December 5th as well. But if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to John chapter 5 as we're continuing our series through the gospel of John. Now in the gospel of John, John is trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of God. And the way he does it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory and how Jesus received glory from the Father. And the reason why he does it is to invite us and his readers in to believe so that we may have life in his name. Now in the gospel of John so far, we're in that part where Jesus is revealing his glory and he does it by healing and performing wonders and signs and some saw Jesus simply as a miracle worker. They didn't really see him for who he is, as the son of God, the Messiah, the savior of the world. They really didn't believe in who he is, but rather they believed in what he could do for them. And so last week we saw the Galileans, their faith was heavily dependent on signs and wonders. And in a sense, they really didn't care about Jesus. All they cared about is what Jesus could do for them. And all they wanted from Jesus is to perform another trick, show us another sign, another wonder. In essence, in the text, Jesus rebuked that kind of faith. And then we saw the royal official who first depended on Jesus for healing, but later on, he believed in the words of Jesus, demonstrating that unlike the Galileans, his faith was not simply, his faith was not dependent in signs and wonders but rather in who Jesus is. And so last week we saw the character of Jesus. Jesus moved towards him full of compassion and mercy. And the faith that Jesus desires is the faith that is not dependent on signs and wonders, but rather a faith that is dependent on who he is first. Now, as we continue in the gospel of John, Jesus continues to heal. And as he continues to heal, we're going to see there are some who come to Jesus and ask for healing. But then we're going to see in our story today somebody who did not come to Jesus, who did not ask for healing. And yet we see how Jesus reached out with love and confession and, and compassion and heals this man in the process of healing this man, revealing his glory. But what we're also going to see is how the people respond. No longer are the people going to respond in reservation, hesitation, like, like, is he the son of God? Is he the Messiah? But now we're going to see how they're going to respond in opposition, especially the religious leaders. So, so let's look at our text in John chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a, a large number of disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. So, so let's stop here. So John tells us a little bit of the background, what's going on. It's a Jewish festival. He doesn't tell us what kind of Jewish festival, but rather he just tells us it's a Jewish festival. And we know because of John's writing style, if it was important, if there was symbolism and significance to this Jewish festival and the fulfillment of Jesus, he would have mentioned it, but rather he just in general terms uses this Jewish festival as an historical marker to show us the reason for why Jesus is in Jerusalem. That's all he tells us. And then he tells us that there was a pool uh, that was well known as a place of healing. And you'll notice in, 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 your, in your, your Bibles, like part of verse 3 and verse 4 is taken out, and it's a footnote. And the reason why it's a footnote is because not every manuscript had that verse. And so as they looked at all the different manuscripts, they couldn't put with certainty in the text because they're thinking maybe as these manuscripts were duplicated, somebody might have added it in to provide further explanation. So in this pool of healing, legend had it, that an angel would come and stir the water. And whoever would jump into this pool of water first would be miraculously healed. And so many desired this healing. And so many would be kind of close to the pool. So all the paralyzed, the lame, the, the, the blind, the deaf would all be waiting. And the second that this pool was stirred, the first one would jump in and hoped to be healed. But John doesn't really draw us our attention here. He draws our attention to a man who was invalid for 38 years. And although technically he, he could have been brought to the pool every single day for 38 years, more than likely he was probably brought to the pool when there was a stirring expected. But John doesn't identify to us his illness. But in verse 7 we kind of see hints of it. Maybe he's paralyzed, maybe he's lame, or exceedingly weak. But regardless of what his illness is for this invalid's man, this legend of healing just seemed far out of reach for him. He had no one to help him in the water, and so he was limited. And because of his limitations, that meant he could not be the first one to enter into the pool. And you kind of see him coming with an expectation, with a glimmer of hope. But as the years would go by, that glimmer of hope, that expectation would slowly but surely fade away. But then Jesus comes, and look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Verse 7, Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walked. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now, in verse 6, the text might imply to us that Jesus found out about this invalid's condition. Maybe he found out through inquiries. Maybe this man stood out to him, and Jesus was asking around, what's the deal with this guy? There's something going on. Like, do we know, do we know his story? Like as we read that, that's kind of like the conclusion we come up with. However, 
The Greek participle for learned or realized in some of your translations does not, uh, does not mean that it is an inquiry, but rather it is pointing and suggesting to Jesus' supernatural knowledge. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man, that means Jesus knows everything. He knows this man. And so the first thing we can learn is as we see the character of Jesus, as we see Jesus revealing his glory in the story, the first thing we learn is, if you're taking notes, is the complete knowledge of Jesus. The complete knowledge of Jesus. Jesus didn't have to inquire of this man. He didn't have to find out about this man. He knew this man. He knew exactly what was going on in his life. He knew his condition. He knew his heart. He knew how long he's been uh, crippled for. He knew the reason why he was crippled. He knew the the man's pain and the disappointment that he's been facing. He knew the jadedness, the cynicism in his heart. And despite Jesus knowing everything about this man, notice Jesus' sovereign initiative. He goes to this man and he asks this man, do you want to get well? Now, the text tells us, and we can assume, based on verse 3, that this was not the only guy at the pool. Because John tells us in verse 3, within these lay a large number of disabled. In other words, there were many people at this pool that needed healing. It's not like this guy uh, walked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, can you heal me? He was minding his own business, waiting for the water to be stirred as he saw his hope just drift away. And yet out of everyone, Jesus picks this man out and he asked him, do you want to get well? And the natural question that we have as we read this text is, Why? Like, why does Jesus pick this guy out out of all the other people? What's so special about this? Well, John doesn't tell us. All he tells us is about this invalid that Jesus picked out. And Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? And look at the man's response. Verse 7, Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Like you can almost see the pain. Maybe even a hint of sarcasm by this guy's jaded uh, life circumstances. He held to the popular belief that whoever is in that water first after it stirred would be healed. But his problem is he can never get to it because there's nobody else to help him. So in a sense, by his response, he's like, what do you think? Of course I want to be healed. My situation is hopeless. Now, if we stopped our story here, it's easy for us to maybe read into the text a little bit. We can technically read into the text a little bit and say, you know, the depths of this man's desire was for healing and it could be measured by his dedication of being at the pool day in and day out. We can even say the question that Jesus was asking him, do you want to get well, could have been a test. Maybe Jesus wanted to see the man's desire and willingness to be healed. And this man tested, uh, passed the test with flying colors. And then the application we could be drawing is the first step of healing is the desire of wanting to be healed. 
That's if we stop at this text. And the reason I'm bringing this up is not to be sarcastic, even though I'm a little sarcastic, is but to show you the importance of looking at the entire context, because this is not what's going on here. This is not how John portrays this invalid. Because in verse 11, we're going to find out, after Jesus heals him, he carries his mat, and the authorities confront him. And what does he do? He immediately shifts blame to the man who healed him, told him to carry his mat. And then when they asked him, do you know who told you to carry your mat? Do you, do you know this guy? He's so dull in verse 12, he doesn't even know who healed him. And then later on in verse 14, when Jesus confronts him of his sin and says, hey, you need to stop sinning, other, otherwise something worse is going to happen to you. What does he do? He runs straight to the authorities to report to the authorities who the guy is who told him to carry his mat so that he can get out of trouble. And so with this information, now we look at verse 7 here. He's not a man full of hope and desire to be healed. But rather, he's a crotchety old man grumbling as he thinks he's answering a silly question. Like, what do you mean? I want to be healed. Look at my condition. Of course I want to be healed. And now with this information, now it makes you even wonder, like, why did Jesus pick that guy out? Clearly, there was other people that, that had the same condition that probably would have responded a little different. Jesus could have technically avoided a confrontation with the authorities if he just picked somebody out, but yet he picked this man out. And Jesus, look at verse, what verse 8, Jesus says in verse 8 to this man. Knowing his heart, knowing what's going on, he, he, he says to this man in verse 8, Get up, Jesus told him. And then he instructs him, Pick up your mat and walked. Instantly the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. The words that flowed from Jesus' mouth gave life to this man's fragile body. And what John is trying to show us is just as the 38 years proved the gravity of his disease, so the carrying of his mat and walking is proving the completeness of his healing. So here's the second thing we learn as Jesus reveals his glory. Not only does he have complete knowledge, but the second thing, if you're taking notes, we learn the powerful word of Jesus. How did Jesus heal the man? He spoke. With a powerful word, he healed this man. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to raise the dead with a word. In chapter 5, John chapter 5, if you look, skip over to verse 25, he says to the authorities, Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 28 says this, Do not be amazed at this because time is coming when, when all who are in the grave will hear his voice and come out. What's John trying to show us? Look at the powerful word of Jesus. With the word he heals, with the word he raises the dead, with the word he's going to defeat the enemy once and for all. We're going to reserve application for the end, but let's move on. As the scene now shifts to the religious leaders of the day, you, one would expect rejoicing. Here is an invalid. It's been 
paralyzed or lame or, or very weak for 38 years. And the people should be rejoicing. But that's not what happened. Look at verse, the second part of verse 9. John tells us the second part of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. And so John briefly mentions to us that's kind of setting the scene for this confrontation. When Jesus spoke this word and healed the man, it was the Sabbath. And so the charge of this man is him carrying his mat. Now, it's important for us to understand that, that, that nowhere in Scripture was it commanded that you're not allowed to carry your mat on the Sabbath. However, the law commands us to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You ought to work on six for six days, and on the seventh day you must do, you must rest and not do any work. Now the question that some of us have and the question that the, that the people of God had, that the religious leaders had is, okay, we want to honor that, but what constitutes work? And so these religious leaders over time try to define and come up with guidelines of what constitutes work to teach the people of what it looks like to honor the Sabbath. And so by that time, the religious leaders in the Mishnah, which is kind of an interpretation and further unpacking of the law, came up with 39 classes of work. And one of those classes is carrying an object from one domain to another. So in other words, maybe they saw this man and maybe they thought he was a delivery guy because he was selling mats. And so he took his mat from his house to the person he was delivering it to. And so they, with, 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 with jumping to conclusion, you're carrying your mat. You're carrying an object from one domain to another, which means you are working and you are disobeying the Sabbath. And look at verse 11, how this guy responds. The man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walked. You would think that this invalid for 38 years would say, hey boys, listen up. I was paralyzed. I was lame. I was really weak. I couldn't walk. And God miraculously healed me. And me carrying the mat is evidence that I am healed. We should be rejoicing because who else could heal other than God? No one, which means this is from God. But he doesn't say that. He shifts the blank. He shifts the blame to the one who healed him. He doesn't, even know the, he doesn't even know the man's name who healed him. Look at verse 12. Who is this man who told you pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd who that was there. And so he shifts blame. He blames Jesus. And by blaming Jesus, he's ducking a responsibility from these authorities. And eventually in verse 15, we're going to find out he's going to report Jesus. Now, from the authorities' perspective, anyone going around telling people not to honor the law is far more dangerous and far more threatening than anybody breaking the law. So they weren't really fearful of this man breaking the law, but rather fearful of the one telling everybody to break the law. 
Who is this man? And we see a little bit of irony here. The Jews hear of a wonderful healing and a formal breach of the law. They don't really care about the healing. What do they care about? All they care about is the formal breach of the law. So in a sense, they're thinking they see what is important, but in reality, they're completely missing the most important thing. And we see how Jesus frequently would slip away into the crowd. And so we come to verse 14. It says this, After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So after this man's confrontation with the religious authorities and him shifting blame and blaming Jesus for everything, not celebrating whatsoever, he finds, Jesus finds him in the temple and says one of the oddest things. He says, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore. Stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. Now, as we read the text, a natural question is like, like, what does Jesus mean by that? Like, that's kind of harsh. Like, is Jesus implying that the reason why this man was invalid for 38 years because of his sin? Does Jesus mean now that he's made well, like, if he continues in this lifestyle that he's living, something worse is going to happen? I think there's a couple of things for us, at least some comments for us to be made to kind of uh, maybe make sense of some of it. I think the issue is not whether this man was a preeminent sinner that caused this condition. In other words, it wasn't because he was the worst of people, that's why, uh, because of his sin, that caused this condition. However, we've, we've read in Scripture that some tragedies are a result of, of sin. reason why bad things happen, the reason why certain people are suffering is because of specific sin and the reason that all of us are suffering in our lives is because of general sin the the fall altogether but this does not mean that everyone who commits these sins will all of a sudden fall ill or die but it does mean that some instances of suffering are a direct result of specific sin i think a second thing to to comment is the sentence structure here stop sinning and something worse may happen to you Like those two thoughts, stop sinning or something worse can happen to you, we can't interpret them independently as two thoughts. But but rather, the best reading of this, and I think the NASB has it right, this is what it says. In a sense, we can read, stop sinning lest something worse happen to you, which means that bad things that has already happened was because of sin, and this man must not repeat it. And then the last comment to make is, I don't think we can interpret this text and see the man as morally inferior and us being morally superior. Because what are we all? We're sinners. We're guilty just like this man. And if we do not repent, we too will perish. And sometimes it's because of the Lord's, all the time it's because of the Lord's mercy and grace that he does not consume us and give us what we deserve. How many of you see people that get away with murder? Not literally, but in a sense. And yet, nothing bad happens to them. You're like, well, that's unfair in a sense. I don't know why some people get away and some don't. But we can't look at this man and say, ha, 
or a little better than him. I know I'm bad, but not as bad as this guy because at least I'm not lame for 38 years. We can't see it like that. But what really is happening and what Jesus is saying, based on the sentence structure, he is stressing the urgency of stop sinning. You need a moral transformation. And even though you might be physically well, spiritually you are not. And if you continue in this way, something worse will happen. What is that worse you think Jesus is talking about? Eternal judgment. And guilty of uh, of dullness, what does he do? He goes away and reports uh, to the authorities who Jesus is. And he's not doing it to give Jesus credit. He's doing it to get out of trouble. He doesn't want to be on the blacklist. He doesn't want to be on the watch list, the no enter the temple list for breaking the law. Rather, let's throw Jesus under the bus. And this really sets the stage for confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. Look at verse 16. He says, Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responded to them, verse 17, My father is still working, and I'm working also. And this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So so in a sense, they're not just upset because of this man carrying his mat on the Sabbath. They're really just upset because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And so they begin to persecute Jesus. But notice, I feel like there's information missing between verse 16 and 17. Verse 16 tells us that now they're trying to persecute Jesus. But in verse 17, we read the response of Jesus. In other words, John does not show us how the the religious leaders are confronting Jesus and the charges they're bringing against Jesus. But rather he goes from they're persecuting him to look at Jesus' defense here. In in verse 17, we'll read it again because we're going to unpack this verse. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working and I am working also. So if you're taking notes, the third thing we learn about as Jesus reveals his glory, not only does he have complete knowledge, not only is his word powerful, but the third thing is he is, we see the continuous work of Jesus, the continuous work of Jesus. Now in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 2 to 3, it says, on the seventh day, God, the seventh day of creation, we God rested. So God created everything in six days, and on the seventh day, he rest it and so the question that the religious people had the question that we have ourselves is what does it mean for God to rest well we know God was not resting because he was tired so what does it mean for us that he rest or that he rested on the seventh day like does is there is the reason does does God keep the sabbath law himself does he continually to rest on the seventh day is Jesus, by saying the Father is continually working, is Jesus, impl- is Jesus implying that, that God is continually breaking the law because he's not resting on the Sabbath day? But then if, if God is holding the entire universe together, what happens when he rests? Does the universe continue? 
And so these were all the questions that the rabbis of that day even had. So in the first century, at the end of the first century, this is what the rabbis concluded when it meant with God constantly working as they kind of justified that God himself does not break and violate the Sabbath law. And this is what they say about God. The entire universe is God's domain. And since breaking the law is carrying an object from one domain to another, and the entire universe is God's domain, guess what he's never carrying? He's never carrying anything outside of his domain. So they said, thus, God never violates the Sabbath because the entire universe is his domain. He never carries anything outside of his domain. The second a conclusion they had of why God never violates or breaks the Sabbath law when it comes to God's rest is since God fills the whole world, the whole universe, God lifts nothing higher or greater than his own stature. In other words, when we lift an object that is really heavy, we are exerting energy. We're trying to lift it higher than, than our strength in a sense. But since God fills the whole universe, anything he lifts, he doesn't even exert energy. Now, with that in mind, what Jesus is saying is, my father is continue, continually working, and I'm also continually working. You know what he's implying by that? In a sense, he's implying by that. It's just like you believe and you rabbis have concluded that the entire universe is God's domain. The entire universe is my domain. I am not carrying anything outside of my domain. I'm not picking up anything that is greater or higher than my own stature. And in other words, wearing clothes, is that considered work for us? Even though if you had to weigh clothes, it weighs something, right? Some of you have heavier jackets than others, but you wearing it, does it wear you out? No, why? Because it's so light, that's the same thing with everything that God does, no matter how big or how small. He is so big that he doesn't exert almost any energy. And this is what Jesus is applying to himself. If God is constantly working, I'm constantly working too. I'm not breaking the Sabbath law because the entire universe is my domain. I'm not exerting any energy. Did, God, did Jesus exert any energy by healing and speaking a word? No, all he did is what? He spoke a word and he healed the man. And based on that sentence and the weight of the sentence, now you know why they wanted to kill Jesus. Because he was blaspheming. He was identifying himself to be equal with God. And this will set us up for the rest of the confrontation. And despite the evidence, despite the truth of his glory revealed, they refuse to believe. Now in the new year, we'll talk about the rest of this, the Sabbath as we're entering into Advent season. But let's stop here and talk about application here. In our story so far, we see the character of Jesus and how he reveals his glory. He reveals his glory by showing us his complete knowledge. He reveals his glory by showing to us his powerful word. And he reveals his glory by showing us his, he is continually working. That's good information, but what does that mean for us? Think about this. Think about Jesus' complete knowledge. 
Jesus knows everything. Just like Jesus knew this invalid, he knew his heart, he knew his condition, he knew the reason for his condition, he knew his response, and yet Jesus healed him. Jesus knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows what's in your heart right now. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows how you're feeling right now. He knows about your suffering. He knows about your hopelessness and despair in your suffering. He knows how long you have suffered. He knows what you're putting your hope in. And yet, despite that knowledge, what does he do? He draws to you. He moves towards you. He initiates. He doesn't move, he doesn't move towards you because you're moving closer to him. But despite knowing everything about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, he draws towards you. He initiates things in your life. Second thing we can learn is this, as we look at Jesus' power, his powerful word. As he comes near to us in our brokenness, he speaks into our lives. Think about how Jesus healed with a single word. Think about how Jesus raises the dead with a single word. Think about how Jesus in Revelation is going to destroy our enemy once and for all with a single word. He can address your hopelessness and your despair, your pain and your suffering with a single word. And the question you have to ask yourself is, are you listening to his word? Are you trusting in his word? Are you resting in his word? You're like, well, I haven't heard Jesus speak. Yeah, he did through his word. When we read the written word, we're reading the word of God. The very word of God that comes out of his mouth. The very power that spoke creation into existence. The very power that raised this man from being paralyzed. The very power that raised the dead. It's the, it's the very power that convicts us, that pierces into our hearts, that judges our thoughts and our attitudes, that radically transforms us. And so the question is, do you see the power of God's Word? Are you resting it, trusting it, reading it, clinging to it, or is it just like another, another novel in your bookcase that's just collecting dust? As you look at your hopelessness and your despair and your struggles, like, what are you running towards? What are you clinging to? What are you trusting? And the last one, we see how Jesus con is continually working. Now, now, think about this idea, and this is what I really want us to focus on, even when we come to the table. The Bible says that Jesus is our great high priest. He is our mediator. But he's also our atoning sacrifice. And so even though as our great high priest, even though the work on the cross is finished, there's no more sacrifice to be made. Jesus is still continuously working. You're like, well, well, wait a minute, that's confusing. I thought when Jesus died, he said it's finished. How is he still continually working? Well, the Bible tells us. As our great high priest, he is continually working for us. Even though the sacrifice is done, how is he working for us? 
by sitting at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us. And the author in Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 25 tells us, the author, uh, uh, Paul tells us in Romans 8, verse 33 to 34, he says this, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised, and he also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. In other words, what Paul is telling us, The reason why no one can bring an accusation against you if you're in Christ. The reason why no one condemn you if you are in Christ. Because not only did Jesus die for you and he was raised from the dead for you. He is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. In other words, he is praying for you. And how do you know that God hears him? Well, he's sitting right next to God. Now, what does that mean that he's interceding for us. I think Dane Ortland th- does a good job, and obviously this is way more complex, and this could be a whole sermon series, but I'm going to try to just talk in two minutes and get to the table. He says this, Jesus is praying for you right now, not because his atoning work was not sufficient. In other words, Jesus is praying for you right now, not because the blood is not going to cover you, It's not like, you know, you need my blood, but you also need my prayer. No. The blood is sufficient. But he's praying for you right now. And the question is, okay, well, why? Glad you asked. Dane says this. The atonement, that's Jesus' blood, accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. So Jesus' death accomplished our salvation. Jesus praying for you right now is the applying of that moment by moment of atoning work. What what does that mean? How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands here, but how many of you wonder that God would accept you? How many of you had maybe a bad week? You've done things you thought you would never do. you said things you thought you would never say, and you just feel awful about it. There's guilt. There's shame. And so we go to church, and, and we try to pretend, hey, what are you struggling with? Oh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not struggling with anything, but deep down, you're, you're dying. Deep down, there's some sin that you don't want to confess, and, and you're wondering, is Jesus' blood enough for me? I just messed up. This is where Jesus is praying for you now comes into play. Because his sacrifice is done, it's finished, is accomplished. But when he intercedes, when he's praying for you, he is applying that moment by moment, that high and the low in life, the shame and the guilt when you find yourself at times, applying that blood on you, reminding God, not that he needs to be reminded of, but also in a sense reminding you that blood covers you. Day by day, it covers you. It is not like Jesus is saying, hey, I paid for you. You're forgiven. You're guilt-free. Go and sin no more. No. That blood covers past, present, and future. And as he's interceding for you, that blood by moment by moment is covering you.
In the present, he says this, in the past, Jesus did what he now talks about. In the present, Jesus talks about what he then did. And this is why the New Testament always combines, weds together, justification and intercession. You being declared righteous and Jesus continually praying for you to the Father. And the reason why he's continually praying for you is he's applying this atoning work on you moment by moment in your life. So now the work of Jesus is not just something done in the past, but he's continually working. Yes, the sacrifice is done, but what is the work he's doing right now? He is interceding. He is praying to the Father for you. In a sense, he's cheering you on. It's not like he's convincing the Father to love you for the Father already loves you, but he's applying this atoning work to you moment by moment. And what is the work he's going to do? When he comes back with the word, he's making all things new. And this is how Jesus reveals his glory. So what do we do? We do not try better. We do not work harder. We look to Christ. We rest in Christ. We trust in Christ. Knowing his complete knowledge of us, knowing his powerful word as we're resting on his word, knowing he's continually praying for us every day as he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Let me pray for us as we get ready to sit at this table. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your incredible work of initiating, sending your son to die for our sins, to pay for it in full. Lord, thank you that our sin has been covered. And thank you that you are continually working for us as you are interceding, as you're praying for us applying this atonement to our lives moment by moment. And Lord, you know us. Lord, you know everybody in this room. Lord, you know some of the guilt and the shame that people are struggling with. Lord, you know their deepest, darkest sin. Can you make yourself known? What as we read your word, you have already spoken. But can you take this word and pierce into their hearts and open up their eyes? Can you help them to stop looking to self and look to you? Can you help them to be overwhelmed by the wonderful work that you've done and the wonderful work you're doing? The reason why we know that you will never abandon us, you'll never forsake us, is because you are our high priest and you are working for us right now because you love us and care for us and you who began this good work is going to finish it. So help us to trust in you. Help us to cling to you. As we get ready to sit at this table, again, this table reminds us of the work that Christ has done. It reminds us of where Christ is right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father.
interceding for us. And so as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we're reminded of his body that's broken for us, his blood that has shed for us. We're reminded of the good work that he had begun and the work he's continuing to do in our lives. And by receiving it, we're, we're trusting him, we're looking to him, we're saying, I can't, but you can. I am failing. I'm overwhelmed. I'm hopeless. But I'm looking to you. I'm trusting in you. And so as we get ready to distribute these elements, like, like meditate just on this, this one truth of how Christ, your high priest, is sitting next to God the Father, praying for you right now, cheering you on. And what this table just does, it helps reorient as you look to him and trust in him. At this table, we are reminded of our great high priest who mediates for us and intercedes for us. But unlike other high priests, he was also the sacrifice for us. By this bread that symbolizes his body that was broken for us, we eat it in remembrance of who Jesus is, take it, and what he's done. By this cup, we're reminded of his blood, the new covenant that we have. We drink it in remembrance of him. I want you to take a moment right now and just just praise God. Just thank him for his goodness. Thank Christ for being your high priest, that he's mediating and interceding, that he was the sacrifice for you. And ask the Lord to help you to trust him, to look to him, to rest in him, to cling to his word, to see the power of his word. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this table and for what it stands. And even though this table is only a shadow of the great wedding feast that is going to take place when we, as the sons and daughters of the king, sit in your presence and we feast, and where faith is no longer required because we will see you with our very eyes. We will see your face and we will rejoice and we will be in awe of you. Lord, I pray that in that shadow can those truths become more of a reality for us as we look to you, as we trust you, as we cling to you, as we rest in you. In our times when we find ourselves very discouraged, in our times when we feel defeated by our sin, can we be reminded that you are our mediator, you are our intercessor, you're praying for us, you've not abandoned us, you're not disappointed in us, for your blood covers us. You have bought us, you've made us new. And so in our struggle, can we look to you? We thank you, we love you, and we praise you. 
We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship our King and our High Priest.